Welcome, everyone, to our podcast, Connections. I'm Michelle Prouse, and joining me today is... Spencer Prouse. And today we're recording Conversations on the Couch. First of all, I know it's a little bit unusual to be recording with with a husband, but considering we missed a podcast last week and Spencer has been nominated as an Honorary Relief Society member since he has been behind the scene on all of these podcasts, so he and I decided that we would attempt to make a podcast today and tell a little bit of my story and take advantage of a beautiful Sunday afternoon. So welcome, Spencer. Thank you very much. First, I have to say you are very handsome in real life, and I totally have a crush on you. So thank you for being here with me today. <laughs> my pleasure. And it's great to have the chance to, uh, to spotlight you. I think it'll be great for the sisters to get to know you a little bit also. Well, thank you. We're going to have to pretend like you don't know some of the answers to these questions, but uh, hopefully we'll have a good time together this afternoon and uh, we, can, we can work together on retelling um, some of our story. Uh, most especially, we wanted to share a little bit of our story about our house fire that happened just over a year ago. Many of uh, you in the ward know us by the people that lived in the house that burned down, and, and we figured it might be an interesting story to share with you. So let's start from the beginning, shall we? Let's do. Why don't we start from a little bit about um, learning a little bit about where you came from, where you grew up. Talk to us about your family and some of the things that you used to do as a child. Okay. Well, I grew up in Orem. And I grew up in the same house my entire life. Not many people can say that anymore, uh, but I did. I grew up in the same house. I grew up in a Rambler just on the border of um, Orem and Linden. And I come from a family with five children. And um, I'm right smack in the middle. And as many of you know, I have a twin sister and her name is Val or Valerie. And um, she is uh, mentally disabled. And um, we have just, you know, so many great, great stories. We could make a whole podcast just about amazing and fun and hilarious and crazy things just growing up in a household with somebody like Valerie. She, she always kept us on our toes and, and, uh, I'm so glad that that she's my twin sister. I, I feel like a lot of who I am is because of being raised with somebody with special needs. Just within the past year, Valerie was put into the Utah State Developmental Center. So I am super glad that she's just a short mile from our home here in Pleasant Grove. And um, because of COVID, we're pretty restricted on how often we get to see her. But uh, we do get to pop in sometimes once a week and uh continue building relationships with her there so um if i were to describe myself i would say um well first of all my mom always called me a social butterfly and i think that was unique in my home because my four other siblings were somewhat introverted and far less social let's just say that my mom commented quite frequently that um, she would turn her back and I would be gone. And I would be. I loved spending my time outdoors. I loved being outside and being with friends. And we, I grew up next to a big field. It's now a bunch of condos. Uh, at the time, this field, it was just the perfect playground for, for my friends and I. And we would build huts and we would ride our ATVs and we wouldn't even come home until we could smell dinner. And then as soon as we ate, we would we would run back outside. I mean, it really was such a, such a choice and a fun childhood for me. Um, so I'm a very social person and I do love the outdoors. Um, my dad would take us every year and multiple times a year, multiple times a year, we would, we would do family camping type excursions that we could, where we could travel within a car's reach because of my sister with um, the disability. Yeah, he always he always had something planned like 
around spring break and then something big in the summertime and then something around uh, UEA. Uh, you know, my dad was really, really good at that. But the, the backpacking trips that he took us on were really special because they took so much more planning. And just as soon as we'd finished one, he would start planning for the next year's backpacking trip. And Spence, you're, you're totally aware of that process because as I got older and started dating, it was like one of the dating rituals I would go through would be to take my boyfriend at the time and he would have to go with us on a backpacking yeah, trip. Yeah, that, that was the tryout, right? <laughs> you had to survive the backpacking trip to be part of the family. That's true. You had to survive the backpacking trip because, well, see, there's a lot of things that happen on a backpacking trip. You see a side of people that you don't normally see when you're out in the wilderness for five, six days carrying everything you own on your back and you're moving from place to place and traveling long distances and uh, you get to know some sides of people that you don't get to know otherwise. So that was, it really was a perfect opportunity to get to know people. And something that was really important to me when I would do these trips uh, and I, when I became old enough to take a boyfriend was to see how that young man, um, how he handled being around my family. That was really important to me. And it was really important to me to find somebody who loved the outdoors like I did. And uh, I remember, Spence, the first year that you and I went together, and it was before we were married. You were not long after your mission. And at that point, my dad had been taking us for goodness, 20 years. And he was really excited when he saw how big you were because <laughs> he knew he, I mean, you could just see the wheels turning in his mind. You know, he was like, I'm going to load this guy down. I'm going to, you know, Here's my I'll pack show mule. him date my daughter. Yeah. My dad's not man of many words. He's, he's quite quiet and he's not very sociable at all. And, uh, anyway, he did, he loaded you up and I think you had all of the the pots and the pans and probably both tents and maybe a fuel, uh, a few extra bottles of the fuel. And I just remember your pack being ginormous. And my dad, for the first time ever in all those years, was traveling quite a bit lighter. Um, well, f fast forward to when we got married, I think our wedding gift was um, backpacks. And, and mine was the biggest darn pack he could find on the market. <laughs> That is true. I forgot about that. He did buy us some backpacking gear for our wedding, and yours was like the biggest liter size uh, frame that you could buy at the time. And you know that was just so that you could, he could ensure that you would continue backpacking and, and helping him out with, with the weight. And you did a great job. You know, never once did you complain, and not even when uh, you discovered what, what us siblings uh, affectionately call um, Horse hiking. You'll have to. You'll have to explain what horse hiking is, Fence. Well, let's just say that um, the uh, MREs, which we we kindly dubbed as meals rejected by Ethiopians, uh, <laughs> the MREs uh, <laughs> did not sit too well with most of us gastrointestinally, and so um, especially your dad. And so hiking uh, downwind of him was was what we <laughs> what we labeled horse hiking. And yet you, you still stuck around and you stuck around when you saw, uh, when you saw me not showered or bathed for five days and, you know, such fond memories of those hikes. We would just have so many hours to talk and to really get to know each other and to spend under the stars. Anyway, again, that could be a podcast for another day, but those, those years really for me, uh, drew me not just close to nature and, and close to the Lord. Certainly he is the maker of all the beautiful things we enjoy in nature, but to my dad, which was really important to me because my dad was a man of very little words. And um, in fact, my dad was, was raised in a home where his family had immigrated from Slovenia and there was a lot of alcoholism and a lot of abuse and so my dad just wasn't a cuddly teddy bear. He, he showed his love by spending time with us. And I'll forever and ever be thankful for him for that. Well, I will forever and ever be thankful for him for instilling in, not only in you, but also in me, a, a love for the outdoors and a love for backpacking and, and just the, 
the sacred time that it is up there in the mountains. And, and I think there's a few things that you learn up there. Not only you mentioned um, getting to know people in a way that you normally wouldn't get to know them or seeing a side of them, but also you see a side of yourself that you, you don't normally get to see and learning how to, in fact, um, last week in, in Angie Bradburn's podcast, she talked a lot about having to quote unquote, dig deep as she, as she was climbing Kilimanjaro with her family. And I think, you know, I've, I've experienced that as well on some of the hikes that we've been on just, you know, with heavy packs and long days and having to go up yet another pass or go up to the, to the peak of, of another mountain and, and having to dig deep and, and realizing that you can do hard things and that you can, um, you can keep going even sometimes even when you, you don't feel like you can, there's another, another place there mentally or another gear there that you can, you can hit. And, and so, um, that was, that's been an important lesson for me that I've learned that I, I attribute to some of the things that your dad introduced me to. Boy, and I know throughout our entire marriage, we have reflected on those lessons that we've learned in the mountains and in going through some of those hard things in order to kind of wrap our mind around, you know, some of the hard things that that we've gone through. Um, I still remember a picture. We lost it in the fire. Um, But I remember a photograph. It's like forever in my mind. And it's you in the Hyuintas where we love to backpack. And you're holding your backpack on your back. And then you have my backpack <laughs> on your front. And um, without being too sappy or already shedding tears over this, I just, you know, Spence, you've just always been the one to get me just that last, that last mile, that last hill. You know, we've, we've always done everything as a team. And, uh, Anyway, so let's talk about um, let's talk about our courtship for a minute, because I think that's kind of a fun story too. So, um, not many people know this, but Spencer and I knew each other in high school. We went to Mountain View High School together, and um, he was a senior when I was a sophomore. So we had a very brief window that we kind of came into each other's lives and got to know each other through mutual friends. And uh, we did a lot of group dates together. Uh, Spencer had a girlfriend and that was my good friend, Janine. Yeah, you were, you were dating my best friend in high school, a guy named Dan. That's right. And so, I, I had a girlfriend and, and so we were in lots of group date pictures together, but never, never as a couple. Which, you know, looking back now and knowing what I was like in high school and what my relationships were like in high school. I'm just really glad that I viewed you as just a really great friend and somebody that I could trust and spend time with without the complications of young love and trying to figure out those tricky dynamics before a mission, because those, those were, those were hard years, you know, trying to figure out myself and boyfriends and all that. So I was, I was glad to refer to you as like a brother, um, in those years, just, you know, in high school. But, um, why don't you tell the listeners how things kind of turn from brother to boyfriend? Well, we can back up. Do you like how I said it like that? Yeah, boyfriend. They didn't yeah. get to see my eyes, but you got to see yeah, the brother boyfriend. To boyfriend. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, even backing up before, uh, before leaving on a mission, um, I had graduated and, uh, was getting ready to go and Michelle was still, you were still in school. And, uh, at one point there was a, there was a girl's choice dance down at, at UVU at the time it was UVSC, Utah Valley State College. And, um, and, uh, you had set me up with a friend of yours um, who was fairly tall and and uh, needed a date for that night, and so she asked me out, and and you asked Dan out, and and we went uh, down to to UVSC to go to this dance, and and I was dancing with this girl that I I didn't know at all. This was a blind date for me, um, but I knew the two of you, 
which made the evening <laughs> more comfortable than just a regular blind date. But uh, um, that evening, I don't quite know what got into me, but uh, uh, for one dance, you you decided to take pity on me and uh, and come over and and uh, dance with me so that I didn't have to dance with this girl that I didn't know all night long. And for one dance, you came over and and, uh, and we danced uh, one song. Tell them what the song was, and you have to tell them what I was wearing because that's, like, amazing. Okay, so it was it was Lady in Red, and you were wearing a beautiful flowing red, I think it was a velvet, velvet dress. Um, but just a beautiful colored dress, which I now know, I have since come to know, that that was that is your favorite color, uh, this the color dress you were wearing that night. But anyway, as we were dancing, I like I said, I don't know quite what got into me because it's not normally my style to be so forward. But I remember just looking at you and and saying, Michelle, would you ever marry me? And uh, what was your response? And I meant this most truthfully, and now it's on record. I did tell you. And I meant it when I looked up and I said, Spencer Prowse, I would marry you in a heartbeat. <laughs> so I could, we can officially say that I asked you to marry me before I went on my mission, but uh, we had never actually dated at that point and, and didn't really, looking back now, didn't even really know each other. But uh, I left for my mission and, and then came home. Uh, actually, the same day that uh, that Dan came home, your your high school boyfriend, and um, the two of you, um, you went over to his house the day he got home and just got talking and realized that there was no interest in further pursuing that relationship. And, and uh, at one point in the conversation, Dan said, you know who you should date? You should date Spencer Prowse. He just, he just got home from his mission, too. And and uh, your response was something like, ew, that's like dating my brother. Yeah, remember that scene in um, the Back to the Future? Yeah. When he's on a date with his mom, and she goes to kiss him, and he's like, and she goes, ew, I don't, you know, you kiss like like my brother. No, it was, <laughs> it was just like I had just never thought about you in that way, and I had continued to date while, you know, I had a missionary out, so... It was really kind of like, what? I never even thought about that. You were just you were just such a good buddy. I'd never thought about that because we had always been dating other people. But that was kind of the beginning of the of our lives together though, because of that comment that this return missionary made. I was so excited that you were home. I went to go see you. And pretty much from that time forward we were we were pretty inseparable um i wasn't sure i wanted to marry you right off because it was still you know kind of re-entering a friendship and all that and anyway we don't need to go down all of that but we knew we loved each other and we knew that we loved to do everything together we were back out and doing adventures together and and uh it's been the best 21 years of my life. Well, one of the things that that I learned very quickly in going hiking with you and your dad was that that you have a love for for nature and you have a love for rocks. And you found you found beautiful rocks that that you you always find a way to bring up the rocks. I do. Yeah, I have to because it ties into <laughs> further things. <laughs> but I uh I found quickly that, that, that you had this love for rocks and that whenever you would find a rock that you just loved, um, you would put it in my backpack and have me carry it for the rest of the 50 miles <laughs> back to the car. But uh, So you, you found a way to load me up with, uh, with beautiful things and after we got married, I found a way to load you up with a heavy backpack as well because we... You married a guy who had not finished any schooling yet, and so you um, were a saint just putting me through schooling for the next um, eight years and having our family along the way. Yeah, boy, that was, uh, that was an all, a, a very different type of an adventure. A lot of people were really nervous about you and I starting our family so quickly 
it wasn't more than just a couple months after we were married that we felt like we wanted to start our family. And um, like you said, you didn't have any of your schooling done. And I had one year under my belt from being away at college at SUU, which by the way, I did go down on a full ride scholarship for leadership, but I lost it after a year because I spent all of my time out and uh, climbing in the red, red <laughs> rocks and having so much fun out there and, and uh, found other people to love the outdoors like I did. So ironically, I, I went down there to study outdoor recreational therapy and I lost my, I lost my, uh, my scholarship because I was outside playing all the time. But because I was home, we found each other and, and anyway, we kind of got, you know, we, we decided to start our family. I didn't have a whole lot of schooling. And so to me, the, the thing that I love and I wanted to be most was to be a mom. So we, we did. We started that journey right away. And you were a student. And the next 10 years were um, full of poverty and children and morning sickness and <laughs> really hard engineering classes and a lot of moves. How many places do you think we've lived? Uh, like unique addresses? Um, I don't know. I think I, I counted it one time. It's it's over 15, 16 places that we've we've moved to. That's what I was thinking. I, I think it's pretty close to 20. And uh, within that, it's been like four states. About four states and a whole bunch of moves between different states. So, Do you have a favorite? Where's the favorite place that you've lived? Boy, probably one of the favorite places that we've ever lived, as you know, was Wisconsin. That was, that was the first job that we took outside of MBA school that took us so far away from our roots and literally out to the middle of nowhere into a tiny town called Dodgeville. And, uh, we were in a branch out there and you were called into the branch presidency and we, we almost doubled the war. Do you remember the first Sunday we walked in there? <laughs> I thought for sure we had walked in the very back of the church because there were like two rows, two small rows of sparse people. And I thought, oh, we must be in the back. And then I became kind of more aware of where I was. And I, no, we, we had walked straight into the chapel and our family had just added you know almost <laughs> doubled the not size literally of the doubled the size but i had no idea that we were moving into such to an area with such few members of the church and over the few years um the four years that we lived there it was so amazing how the lord kept bringing families and on fast Sundays, you and I kind of had this inside joke because there would be a new family that had moved into this area and the husband or the wife would get up there and they would say, boy, this is the last place we ever thought we would be, but we felt really inspired that we needed to take a job here. And you and I would look at each other and we knew it was because the Lord was building that part of the vineyard in Wisconsin where members were just so, were just so sparse. And um, those years there were, were full of, my goodness, lots of trials, but also a lot of healing and a lot of growing as a couple. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I have a lot of, lot of fond memories about Wisconsin as well, but it's interesting. I'm, I'm tagging on the comment that you just made on um, people feeling like they were led to an area. And I made the comment to you in sacrament meeting today that, so many people of this ward now have said the same thing. Boy, we had no idea, or we, we had no intention of moving, or we had, we had no, um, we, we don't know why we're here, but we just feel led to this area. And that's been a comment that I've heard over and over and over again ever since we've been in this ward. And it's, it's really interesting to me. And, and certainly we are, um, our story is the same. We had no intention of, of moving, of leaving our other house and selling selling our home in Pleasant Grove and moving into this one, but um, and you know <laughs> certainly the story that happened after that is um, is an interesting one. Part of what we want to cover today, but 
Yeah. So let's talk about that because we could probably go on for like a light year about all the places we lived and people we've met and, and some of, you know, just child raising and all that fun stuff. Um, but I wanted to talk, yeah, I think I wanted to focus the podcast today on just the, the lessons that we learned in moving here to the Manila ward and in coming through the experience of, of a house fire, which resulted in total loss of everything that we owned up to this point in our, in our marriage. And, um, and, and the story that, that led us to buying this house to me was every bit as, as full of wonders and twists and turns as was actually the fire itself. So we lived in our first Pleasant Grove home for, would you say a couple yeah, years? Four, four years. Goodness, four years. Yeah. It was in that home that one night um, at a fireside, Spencer, you were in Singapore, I think. I think so. I was, you, I was traveling. I'm you not... were somewhere uh, international for your company. And um, in that home, we had our, our whole back of our house shared a property line that did not have a fence or anything. It just was grass to grass, back windows to windows of a wonderful family. Many people in this area probably know Robert and Jill Bigelow. They were an, an older couple that had raised a great big family. And um, I think they had, I want to say 10 kids, maybe. I think, yeah, I think that's right. Maybe, yeah, 10 or 11. Anyway, one of their children one night while you were out of town uh, came to me at a fireside. The fireside had just ended. And she said to me, she said, Michelle, do you know anybody in your neighborhood that is looking to sell their home. My husband and I have been looking in your neighborhood for about two years and we haven't been able to find anything. And then she said something that for whatever reason, it just, it entered my heart with just penetrating force. And she said, uh, I would give up all of my chandeliers, all my all my granite counters, all the, all the luxuries that I enjoy to have, to live somewhere where I could teach my children how to, how to farm the property and, and to grow up with their grandma and grandpa, which shared a property line with Spencer and I. And I understood that, and I, it stirred a lot of feelings in me of me living so far away from my family for so many years. And and when I felt the need and the desire for my children to get to know their grandparents and for me to be able to help and to be part of my parents' lives as well, I just, I understood in that moment really what she felt. So I told her, I said, well, Rebecca, I will sure ask around for you. So over the next few days, I asked around and I, I contacted some neighbors and, um, and I just, I, nobody was looking to sell their home. and. I was busy in my living room, which faced uh, the grandma and grandpa's backyard. I was looking out my back windows and I was bustling around one afternoon, just maybe a day or two after she had asked me about this. And I was looking in the backyard and I could see this grandma and grandpa Bigelow in the backyard and a whole bunch of their grandchildren outside. And they were riding ATVs and they were chasing chickens and they were just really enjoying themselves in the backyard. and just the spirit came upon my mind and said, you know, this isn't your home. This isn't where you belong right now. And that thought really brought me to my knees in a very big way because I understood that the Lord was telling me that we needed to do the right thing and that we needed to give this home um, this property give the Rebecca an opportunity to buy the property from us. And I said a quick prayer in my heart and I, I told father, I said, father, if this is right, then you better tell Spencer. <laughs> 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 we are, we had met our match. Well, that was the last thing I wanted was to, to move at that point. I mean, we, we had, we had moved so many times up until that point And, you know, 
we were we were not ready to move again certainly and um and we had also just spent the last six months renovating that home and painting it and i had laid wood floors all all throughout it and i mean it was a we had undertaken some major major projects to to upgrade that home into something that we just loved and and uh to then be thinking about moving again was certainly the last thing on my mind on either of our minds i believe yeah i think that that quite literally for us it would be like I don't know what to liken it to. It'd be like asking me to start over and have a family again. You know, it's like, <laughs> don't even go there. That's not even a possibility. That's really how I felt because the pain of moving so many times and sinking so much of our own personal money into the home and to get us from Texas to Utah, it was, it was literally the impossible task in my mind. So, how would you like to bridge? from that to this house spence i think the key things are just that you know the whole process of of buying this home was so unique um i mean the very fact that we were approached by somebody who wanted to buy our home and then we started looking and and we found the this home that we're in now and we we approached them in in like manner and 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 come to find out they they had they had found a home that that they wanted to uh to buy as well and and so all three of us were in or were were negotiating these deals where um it was just very unique it was all for sale by owner and you know all three of all three of our families were 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 moving but um not quite sure why and not even quite sure that we wanted to but just just that we we knew that we needed to we knew it was the right thing to do i remember when i met molly and dave rupert that molly said that they had been out on a drive and many of you know the ruperts and uh they were just driving past a house they were either driving or walking i'm not sure it's not that far from here and they walked past a house or drove past a house and they looked at each other and they said boy that house has a neat piece of property wouldn't that be cool and you know something along those lines and they just cold turkey can you imagine i i'm i would imagine it was probably molly that did this i don't know if dave i don't know who did this but one of them went to the front door <laughs> and they said um hi would you ever consider selling your house and if I remember the story right, uh, to their surprise, they were invited into the house and the person said, actually, yes, it, it would essentially be a great blessing to us because they were older and the house needed a lot of repairs and they needed out from under it. And so Molly and Dave just really, in a really quick order, ended up buying that house, thinking that they would be able to sell this house really quickly and that they would just be back down to the one house. And um, anyway, that's not how the story goes. They went through a, a very long trial process of a lot of house offers that fell through and a lot of disappointment and stress. And um, they showed the house, this house constantly. And little did they know at this time where they were kind of wrestling with what to do with this and how they felt right about buying this other property that we were going through this really interesting situation where literally from early morning to late at night, you and I were fasting and praying and pouring our hearts out to the Lord to try to figure out where in the world are we supposed to go? I mean, it was so hard for us to find that other home in Pleasant Grove. Uh, we really didn't know what to do. The part that you forgot to tell about finding this house, though, that I think is really funny and just goes to show that Heavenly Father just knows us so perfectly and so intimately. I literally told Heavenly Father on my knees one of the very first nights after I felt like it was right to sell our other home to the Vanderbeeks. I said, well, Heavenly Father, this is the deal. If you want us to sell this house just so they can be closer to their parents 
and make us move again. And, you know, by the way, Heavenly Father, we do have four teenagers that don't want to move. Just saying. Um, I want a house that keeps us in Pleasant Grove so we don't have to move schools. And I want a house that is French country and, um, you know, is a very short drive from the schools. So I kind of put that out there for Heavenly Father. And so then I jumped on Google after I'd said that prayer and I literally Googled French country homes for sale in Pleasant Grove and the Rupert's home popped up because of how their their beautiful two-story library here had been labeled and marked on the internet as a French library or something like that. But their house came up. And when I saw that the house for sale, it was love at first sight. For the next three months, throughout all my back and forth at work and travels, and I'd get I'd get pictures. Oh, check this out. Oh, and what about this? Oh, and what we could do this. Oh, but isn't this house so cool? Yeah, it it really the house was a love hate relationship, and uh, you and I spent many many nights praying and talking and and trying to work this out. But the thing that that I will say about this is that I could not get Molly and Dave's house out of my mind for nothing. And I, I can honestly say it wasn't just because I was gobsmacked about the house. I mean, I'm gobsmacked about a lot of things. I, everything I look at, I just love beautiful things. And, um, but I wasn't willing to go through the stress. But the house, I, I was woken up multiple times during the night and with promptings like the time to buy is now or you know just other different things and then we would talk about it and it just was just not logically making sense but just could not get this house out of our mind so every every single roadblock that we perceived or you know issue that we perceived as a roadblock we'd take to heavenly father and say okay we you know we can't get past this one so we're gonna need your help if if this is where you want us and and one by one every single roadblock was just removed or taken down or we found a way around it or and so it was by the time we got to closing on this house i mean it was one of those things where instead of being like super excited about buying a new home we're still like sitting at the table with pens in our hands Hoping looking that it will fall through looking at each other going <laughs> are you sure you still want to do this and i don't know i, I think so okay well then let's do this and we're signing papers and and the, the funny thing is, the same was also true with the Vanderbeeks who bought our home and, and the Ruperts, you know, and in, in they their... were getting cold feet about never having lived so close to family and would it be okay having family in the backyard. And Molly and Dave, my goodness, just in the amount of time that we started kind of getting to know them and thinking about the house, they had like three solid offers given to them. One was like this crazy cash offer where this. I don't remember. It's like the Maharaja from some weird country came and he owned like this diamond. Some, have to, some you guys will have to hear this from, from Molly. Nigeria. <laughs> but just Molly would call me. She's like, you would not even believe this, but I'll be darned. Everything fell through with them. And by the time that we came to Molly and Dave and we couldn't fight the spirit anymore and the feeling that we were supposed to live here, we came and we met Molly and Dave upstairs in their dining room across the table and we just said you know what guys this is like this is what we have to offer we had to do this to kind of go through with what we felt was right we are not going to blame you at all if you want to just send us away and just ride this out a while longer and get a higher asking price for your home because we would totally understand i mean we just that's that's what we had to do for our own sanity. We were tired of talking about it. We were tired of wrestling with it and praying about it. So we were like, we're just going to act in faith. This is what we've got. This is, to the best of our knowledge, what we feel like is right. And we left it with them. And amazingly so, um, they did accept the offer. And there was just like the sense of relief, like, let's we're all we're all moving forward you know we're just going to move this log jam out of the way um i wanted to mention i remember one night that we were up late talking spence that i remember saying to you maybe this is so hard because something very bad is going to happen something very big is going to happen and i said maybe we're going to have a child die 
and we're supposed to have this particular ward to comfort us and to help us. I said, I don't know what it is. I've never experienced something like this where the decision was so hard to make and it took so many tears and so much fasting and everything else. It's got it. There's something big that's going to happen in this house. Mark my words, something is coming and I don't know what. Do you remember when we talked about that? Absolutely. I do. And of course, we know that, you know, the, the house ended up catching fire. And well, so the interesting thing, too, was because of the way everything went down and because of our, you know, the, the relationship that we had made with Molly and Dave, they were very kind to let us start moving some things even before the closing. So we had started moving stuff into the garage and they had made space for us. And, uh, and we closed on the house and, and, and kept moving things over. And so within, you know, two days of closing, 95% of our stuff was already here in, in the house or in the garage. And um, I, remember, I remember the morning of the fire. We had been in the house for two days. We had closed on the house and we had slept here for two nights. And that morning... Um, for whatever reason, there was just a palpable peace in the house. And there was, we just felt so, it was just a, such a, a comfort to know that we had moved forward in faith, that we had done what we, we had gone outside of our comfort zone and done what we knew was right. We had bought the home and we just, I remember feeling such peace. And you and I took some chairs out on the back patio and we were listening to the the water feature waterfall that we have in the backyard and 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 just commenting to each other about the, the peace that we felt and and i i took even a little extra time getting to work that morning and and um and each of the children each of the kids each of the children that morning had come to us and said to us we just feel so good we feel so happy right now and our oldest hire, he's so funny. He even said, I feel so good right now. I've never slept that good in my life. I almost feel like I need to do something bad, like run a red light or something. I don't know. It's just, <laughs> you know, the kid's way of interpreting things. He just said, I just, can you, it's like, we were all like, can you feel something in the air right now? And every single one of us had identified that feeling that morning. So on my way to work, I was driving in the car. I was, at, I was headed straight out toward, toward the temple, toward Utah County Boulevard, and uh, was getting ready to, I was starting to think about my meetings for the day, and, you know, with all the music that I love to play, and, and Dave Matthews being one of those, I was, for, I just out of the blue, one of his songs popped in my head, and I started singing it to myself in the car with no music. And, you know, I'm glad that nobody else could hear me because I was probably off tune or something. But I remember singing the lyrics to this song, Funny the Way It Is. And it starts off by saying, Lying in the park on a beautiful day, sunshine in the grass and the children play, sirens pass, fire engine red, someone's house is burning down on a day like this. And I remember just kind of starting to rock out to that song with no music. It was just, you know, singing it to myself in my head. I got to work, and it wasn't half an hour, 45 minutes later, I got a text from Hiram in all caps, you know, Dad, call me now, emergency. And I, or he, he tried to call me first, and I sent him to voicemail, and so he texted me, Dad, call me now, emergency. And I actually texted him back and said, ha ha, funny. I thought, there's, you know, there's no way that there's, there's an emergency. I, I knew right where you guys were. You were headed in the truck to go pick up a, a couch that you had found on KSL. And, and you and Tony and, and Hiram were, were driving back. And, and um, so then he, he calls me again, or he texts me again and then tries to call me. And finally, we get, we get a hold of each other. And he's, he's like, Dad, the house is on fire. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? The house is on fire. He's like, yeah, I, the house is on fire. I backed into the gas meter. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I, I remember just running out of my meeting, you know, telling my colleagues, oh, my house is on fire. I got to go. 
And I remember driving back up the same way that I came and seeing the smoke rise from this area. And I got here, and by the time I got here, the the uh, fire department was already here with their ladder truck and getting set up and getting water you know, sprayed, and they're still trying to figure out how to even turn off the gas, and that was that was a day. And we could do a, probably a whole podcast in and of itself of what that day was like. You know, the sound, the sound of the gas where it had been severed, that that pipe right there and it had been pouring up the side of the house. I mean, it was like, it sounded like. Like a jet engine. Like a jet engine. It was deafening to anybody. So, so Aguilar's down in the corner to all the way. I mean, everybody in the Creekside circle came out to see what the explosion was. It was an explosion. And then it was just really loud. And the house was very quickly up the side into the attic and all the way across the top filled full of gas and there was nothing we could do about it except just watch the house be torched. It, it wasn't stoppable until the gas was turned off. And even then it had been filled with so much gas. It took, I think about five hours and two fire trucks to get the fire to finally stop. When I got here, it was just the, uh, the one corner by the garage that was of the house that was actually in flames. And I thought, okay, They'll be able to put this out quickly and, you know, we'll just have to fix the garage and it'll be okay. And it turns out there was so much raw natural gas that had found its way up through the eaves and up into the attic that um, when that finally lit, it just ended up spending the next few hours burning the top off the home. And they had the ladder truck from, from Pleasant Grove and the ladder truck from, uh, from Lone Peak we're both spraying a thousand gallons of water a minute into the house for for hours. And by the time it was all done, all of our stuff was ruined. Sheetrock was coming off the walls. Um, everything that we had moved into the home that was in the garage still was, was ruined and smoke and water damaged. And we didn't lose a ton of stuff to, to the fire, but we lost almost everything to water and smoke damage. And I remember... At the end of that day, it was amazing to me the outpouring of love and the outpouring of of just kindness from everybody in the in the ward and in the neighborhood. By the time by the time the day was over, we had already had I think half a dozen offers to for, to have our family stay with people we didn't even know at you know at the time in we their were basement. Literally total strangers to everybody in that neighborhood because we had just just moved in can you imagine we had people that came and dropped off bags of clothes to us for hey you know we were getting ready to drop these off at di and sounds like you guys can use these more than we can and and just it was just amazing the outpouring of of just love and kindness that we had from everyone in this ward i think it was bishop that came walking around the circle pulling a wagon full of sandwiches and drinks and just trying to hydrate people it just feels like a really bad dream when I go back and I think about it, they talk about, or you've seen in movies, those moments when something so tragic happens that somebody's psyche just kind of crumbles. And I think that was my moment. You know, I've been through some really hard, 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 hard things in my life. Um, but at that moment, I think because I had piggybacked upon so much emotional stress around doing the right thing to buy the house and at the time I was also um, a, a really big key player in, in taking care of my sister Valerie who was not doing well and she had completely drained my battery on top of moving and everything else and and when I saw the fire I just I've never had this happen to me before but I literally collapsed on the ground and Normally, in really stressful and scary situations or something like that, you know, my intuition and my, my, the mom in me is like, you be brave for your kids, you make sure the kids are okay. And then when the kids are all tucked into bed, then you kind of do your processing. It didn't, I couldn't even be there for my kids. And they will tell you to this day that that was probably the scariest part for them because I was so, I was so, uh, totally, mentally, I think, just traumatized and gone 
seeing that happen, it was like I just fell on the ground and I just sobbed. And I have no idea who was around me. I remember my son being there and thankfully my husband showed up and my mom was taking care of the kids. But I just, I just checked out, you know, it was like, I just, I just couldn't go any further. I was like the pioneer on the trail, you know, that was like, leave me in the snow. I'm just going to get nice and cozy and go to sleep and not wake up. That's, you know, I just, I was done. It was, it was the last straw for me. It was, it was a very scary day. It was very scary. But like you said, thankfully, a lot of uh, friends and neighbors, you know, they. I remember, I remember walking around and just seeing a lot of kind and caring faces, people that I didn't know, people that I know now, but <laughs> I didn't know then, with just this, this helpless look of, I'm so sorry, on their face. But, you know, it was more than that. I mean, they were the, the again, the outpouring of, of love and support that we received from everybody was just, was faith-promoting, was, was, was strengthening. But uh, I also remember... At the end of that day, once you know, once we had you know put out the fire and everybody had kind of wandered back to their homes and everybody left and we uh, we were trying to figure out what in the world we're going to do next and where we're going to go. Um, again, we had a number of offers to stay in people's basements, but you know, Michelle, your parents don't live too far away, so we decided to stay with them for the night and so we we did, we went to the store because we had nothing i mean we were literally I, for the first time the only time in my life i i felt like a refugee i had the clothes on my back and i had my family around me and i had we had our car our, our vehicles and that's it and so we went to the store and we at least needed to get some toothbrushes and toothpaste and some jammies for the kids and so we stopped by what was it the smiths there on um Timpanogos highway and and um i remember we we walked in and we you know we'd fill up a shopping cart full of stuff and started to check out and and i remember just standing there with just this feeling of like it's it was feel it was just so surreal what we had just experienced and the fact that you know we couldn't actually go home i think that was that was the hardest thing for me is just knowing that i couldn't go home and kind of let my wings hang down there there was no home to go home to yeah i think for me that was that was a very scary feeling being so vulnerable like hey it's 11 o'clock at night i've cried my eyes out we're all filthy. We all smell horrible. And I don't even have a fresh pair of underwear to change into. I don't have shampoo for my hair. I don't have a blanket that smells like my laundry detergent. I just, just having not one single possession that was familiar to us to comfort us and help us feel like we were okay everything for the next several weeks would be borrowed everything for the next several months would be brand new and although that may sound fun to some people it actually was probably the worst part of the entire process was having to replace every single thing that we owned and needed to function as a family from can openers to our temple bags to you know some of those things we're still replacing um that think about trying to set your college student up for simple living you know it's like that times a million when you have a family and you have needs and everything we didn't have a, a table to eat on we didn't have a place it was just like my mind is just around and around and around you know mamas like to nest we like to nurture and papas like to know that mama's happy and we're both just looking at each other like this you know nobody prepares you for this situation to completely start over when you have grown children well, that are all depending on you and to keep you in a routine I, you don't it's just there's no way to prepare for that mentally or physically yeah it's it's you know that that again coming back to that first night i remember going to 
take out my contacts and I took my contacts out and went to go, where's my glasses? And I'm like, oh yeah, my glasses are in the house. And that was the, that was the first of, you know, a thousand different things where, you know, the next time we go to make cookies, you know, where's the measuring cups? Oh, we don't have those. Let's go to, oh, off to the store, kids. Let's go get measuring cups. Or, you know, so we'd, we'd get all set up and we'd get to a place where we could operate. And then, you know, something seasonal would happen, you know, Christmas. Well, let's get out the Christmas tree. Oh, we don't have a Christmas tree. We don't have lights. We, we don't, don't have, have lights. Ornaments. <laughs> and then the emotion, it's like you have to process loss. Like, oh my goodness, all those ornaments we gathered all those years, the, the handmade ones by the children or the ones we bought that we would gather when we were on a special vacation or something like that. And it, it was a constant reminder that we had suffered such a, an incomprehensible loss where everything was gone from photographs to and then we would be okay, and then that would come back, and then it was just like this cycle of grieving over and over again, even though it was just stuff. I remember, I remember being asked a number of times, um, even while the house was still burning, you know, how we were, how we were doing, and I, I remember telling people that everything that was important to me was outside the house when it when it started burning, and that. That was you and the kids, and you know all the rest of that stuff. As unfortunate as it was, and as as frustrating as it was to have to go and replace it all, it's just stuff, and it can just be replaced. But I do, I do remember standing in that Smith that night, and just wanting people to know what kind of a kind of like that talk. Who was it that one of the apostles gave a talk one time and just said? Something about, I hope you know I had a hard time. And that's what I wanted. I just wanted people to know that, you know, I'm having a hard time. My house just burned down and I'm a refugee. I got nothing. And I remember watching people walk into that Smith's and just laughing and joking with each other and having a good time. And I remember just longing to just, I wanted them to know, hey, you know, look at me. I, you know, I don't, I don't have a house anymore. And, uh, you know, I'm having to buy jammies and toothbrushes for my kids and it was <laughs> it was in that moment that um i had the words of of a hymn come to my mind and and i think it's lord i would follow thee and one of the verses to that song says in the quiet heart is hidden sorrow that the eye can't see and i i remember feeling that and just the the poignant nature of that um, of that message and something that I will never forget. Something that I will it it's changed the way that I look at other people too. And even just today in our <laughs> in our sacrament meeting, hearing a number of the brethren and sisters get up and talk about two things that resonated with me today. So many people got up and said we don't know why we're in this war, but we know we're supposed to be here. And that's certainly true for us. We don't know why we're here, but we know we're supposed to be here, and we're amongst some of the greatest people. And then the second thing was, all of them had something that they're, that they're struggling with, that they're going through, a hard time. And I just, I, every time I hear that, I think back to that night, and think back to the time that, Spirit taught me that in the quiet heart is hidden sorrow that the eye can't see. All of us are struggling with something. All of us are struggling either with loss of something physical or, you know, loss of a loved one or a personal struggle or, you know, health challenges. And that's, it's, it's, it's okay. It's normal. It's, that's what this life is about. Life is about hard things because it's only through those things that we that we can learn, truly learn the things that we came here to learn. So Spence, I remember as we were kind of talking about and preparing for this podcast that we felt really overwhelmed because there was a lot of very private and spiritual experiences that we've had um, 
through the process of rebuilding this home. It took just over a year. And there were a lot of times that, that we knelt and wept as a family and that we have grown much stronger as a family from this experience because we have had to rely so much on our faith and upon the Lord. And so without having the time to really go through all of those things on a podcast, and and they mean much more to us than they would to you without the context, but I did want to make sure that we ended this podcast on, you know, with a couple thoughts in mind and uh, just bring to the forefront kind of at the end of this, just what did we learn from this? Well, first of all, I want to say that it's amazing to me looking back on this now and knowing all that we went through to even finally decide to buy this home, that not one single time did we ever look back, even after the house fire, and say, boy, are we being punished? Maybe we made the wrong decision. That thought never entered our minds, and I'm so glad because we very much could have had guilt or feelings of like, you know, maybe we're being punished or whatever. You know, we, we could have had some really negative feelings, but we didn't. We felt absolutely sustained by the Lord. And another really, really important thing that we have learned as a family is the value of things. Um, honest to goodness, it probably sounds really weird to say this, especially since I made such a fuss over what I felt like was the beauty of this home. And yes, it's now top to bottom. It has new sheetrock, carpet, paint. I got to pick it out. And, you know, if the Lord were to inspire Spencer and I, again, to make a change, to go serve somewhere, to go do something, I wouldn't think twice about doing that because I know that when we trust the Lord, he prepares a way. And there were so many times that we were not capable on our own to move forward with the rebuilding of this house or with getting the things that we needed. And things always fell into place. And we could not deny that it was the Lord's tender mercies that were helping us to put our lives back together and to put this home back in a certain way that was pleasing unto him. And that would bless our family for whatever time that we are that we are living in this home. So beforehand, I was I think my heart was too set upon things. I'm a collector. I'm an artist. I love my special little things that I find. Um, you know, those things can be replaced. And even as hard as it was to lose photographs and stuff like that you can heal from things like that. But the relationships that we have, how we hold on to each other, and most especially a relationship with the Lord, he, he, he is the one who gives and he is the one who can take. And, and truly everything else in between is just stuff. And sometimes we have and sometimes we have not. And Spencer and I have, have lived in both seasons of have not and have, putting into perspective you know, the, the scripture that's found in the Bible, how the Lord can turn beauty from ashes. I feel like we are living witnesses of that statement. I remember the day after the fire, sitting out front, I was, I was taking inventory <laughs> of all, my, all of our stuff, and, and I went down into the band room and had pulled out my sopping wet guitars and laid them all out in the driveway and I found one that was semi-playable and I was sitting on the front porch playing the guitar. Sister Margaret Pearson rolled up and in, in a way only she can do, just a big smile on her face. <laughs> a big smile on her face. Just told us that she loved us and told us that we were, you know, certainly kind of a welcome to the ward kind of a thing, but uh, 
Then she proceeded to tell me also her about her and her her story, she and her husband, and moving here from Oregon, and the same kind of thing, just not knowing why, but following a prompting to be here. And remember, she looked into our faces and she said, you're meant to be here. Boy, those words comforted us. You guys have all been our angels, and we hope that we can love and serve you and certainly share our, our deep and abiding love that we have for our Savior with you and return some of that service. So I'm so glad that, you know, in a small way, we could share this journey with some of our ward members and so thankful that all of you were so patient with this long rebuild process because it was messy and it was tough and this house was an eyesore for well over a year and and we're so thankful for your kindness and and your patience while we have tried to get back on our feet thank you for letting us do a sappy podcast i promise you we've been holding hands and winking at each other the whole time so that's just a tiny bit about us and and some of our adventures over the last couple of years of our phoenix of a house rising from the ashes. And now we're full swing into living mode with dirty toilets and scuffs on the baseboards. And, um, you know, it's funny. It's funny that that's just the way that life is. You know, you think you're never going to get through something. And all of a sudden you look over your shoulder and you've made it. And the only thing you really have to show a lot of times is just your, your heart has grown a bunch more sizes and you're, you're wiser for the wear and tear. So thank you sisters for listening in today and uh, Spencer for joining us. Thank you. I was, I appreciate being here and, and um, thanks for letting me be part of this, even though I'm not part of the technically part of the Relief Society. I'm happy to be an honorary member with <laughs> Sister Ellis says you are the honorary member because you do our editing and you make sure the podcasts actually make it online. <laughs> Thanks for letting me be part of the podcast today with our conversations on the couch.